welcome to Talking Tourism. This is our Tourism Champion Tales series. We showcase some amazing tourism champions who've made their mark on the tourism industry. Be inspired, awed and intrigued at their stories. And now, on to today's show. This is Talking Tourism and I'm today's host, David Reid. Every fortnight, the Tourism Industry Council Tasmania is bringing you conversations with interesting and bright minds in the tourism industry. Today, it's all about tourism champions. Today, we've got Simon Current, the only Tasmanian ever to be awarded an Order of Australia for services to tourism. Did you know that, Simon, and welcome? Well, thank you, David. No, I didn't. I thought there were these things were scattered like confetti. Oh, they are, but never for tourism services. Oh. Yeah, so welcome. Well, I'm on it. May I ask you, you're working as a general manager at Hamilton Island in the early 1980s. What spark of an idea made you get a bid together to go and buy Pencil Pine Lodge at Cradle? Well, I went went on holidays in Tasmania a year or two before I went up to manage Hamilton Island and... um, and I couldn't find what I thought Tasmania had, which was, you know, a lodge somewhere. They didn't have one. Pencil Pine was actually just a walker's haven where three brothers who were actually loggers, who were people that chopped down the forest and clear-felled it, um, built a walking, um, I don't know quite how to describe it, but a, a, a building that they invited all their mates to have drinks in. They gave away more grog than they sold. Um, they had um, their family involved washing up out the back and it was just a you know fun place for the walkers that generally went there. So were you a walker? Did you come to do walks no, in the no, wilderness? I, no, you only walk if there's a fish at the end of it, David. Ah, right. A trout, a big one, and uh, that's why I went there thinking, I'll find that. Well... There are fish there, right there, and the pencil pine, which is the boundary of the World Heritage Area, which, of course, as you know, you walk across the bridge and it's then hallowed ground. It is definitely different. So you walk into the World Heritage Area. Interestingly, we took our water out of the pencil pine and it went through the system, including many bodies, and then it went back into the pencil pine and um, ultimately... Someone got pinged for doing that because it was holy water as well. So anyway, that's another story. So come on, tell me, you found this thing. There are the brothers, Grimm, cutting down trees, uh, giving away their grog, having a thoroughly nice time. You went past looking for big fish and thought, oh, bloke good to buy this, but I might go back to Hamilton Island. What on earth made you do that? I will um, – actually, the brothers Ellis were the people – and the brothers Ellis actually owned the um, this edifice that they built out of and with the trees that they clear felled up the road. <laughs> so um, anyway, well, Alec Ellis, uh, whilst I was staying there uh, and standing in front of the fire, because you couldn't actually sit in front of the fire because the staircase came down straight down in front of the fire. They made a little mistake in building. Because they did all But it themselves. would comply to every code, of course. Oh, well, yeah, then the electrical was done by Ozzy Ellis. He claimed to be an electrician, which he wasn't. He entirely, 100% was not an electrician, but he did all the wiring. 
And I discovered that uh, almost um, almost blew up everything, the entire car park, where which had a petrol pump in it, and the um, the two forty volt line that went straight into it with no earthing whatsoever, straight into the petrol pump. So one spark and four thousand liters of petrol would have gone skywards, including half the building and the car park. So yeah, so. What inspired me to look, take this on? Complete ignorance of what it actually consisted of, or but I, uh, Alex, somewhat for some reason, uh, understood that I wasn't entirely happy with Hamilton Island as a product because it's not my style of place anyway. It's, it's a totally legitimate development, of course, and very, very, very successful, but it wasn't where I wanted to be. But he, um, I went back to Hamilton Island after my holiday and I got a phone call from him saying, oh, we, we had a contract for sale and this lady uh, has pulled out. Would you be interested? So I hopped on a plane, went back down and had a chat and we came to an agreement um, in principle on a price. I then went back to Hamilton Island and, and wondered how in the hell I could finance that because I didn't have any money, but I did have... I did have an aeroplane that um, that I dearly loved, <laughs> so I sold that and my wife sold a couple of things, not sure what, but and we scraped enough together uh, to to um, to buy it. But dealing with the Ellis's was a very different um, thing, especially when you came to price. So uh, Alec would say, well, here's the price, and he'd agree on the price. And you go away and you say, well, we'll draw up a contract. And he'd ring you up the next day and say, no, nah, look, that's too low, that price. We're not going to sell it for that. And this went on for a bit, about four times, and then I told him to shove it. Anyway, it didn't deter him, but they had one partner in there who was a lawyer and he wanted to sell it. So anyway, we came to an arrangement at the old price and uh, everyone was happy. You were the first guy to really pro- promote the idea of wild and wilderness for Tasmania because the mainstream Tasmania product at that stage was just ordinary visitors doing a loop in in cars. Um, what do we call it? The donut because people would just drive round and round and round. It was all rent-a-car stuff and a lovely fly-drive place. And here you were, miles out of the way of anywhere, road not sealed, saying this is, what, this is the new Tasmania, this is what it's going to look like. What on earth, what, what happened that didn't come without any risk, surely? Well, no, it was a huge risk. <laughs> um, well, the biggest risk was was 100% geared, David. Everything I did in there, I borrowed the money. I'd get in the Land Cruiser, drive down to the NAB Bank in Devonport and go in and sign up for another 100 grand of bank bill. The NAB never came to see me or see what I did with that bank bill. Never. Not in the whole... Six years. That's why there's a Royal Commission now, Simon. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. However, I paid the interest and, you know, and they got all paid back in the end. But that was a time when Scase was doing exactly the same thing in Ah. Cairns or uh, anyway, Port Douglas. Port Douglas. But he was going up there and he was going into the bank asking for $10 And he'd take his ten million, and then he'd give himself five million as a management fee. And anyway, so he did end up in in jail, as you know. 
um, I was actually putting it into new bits to the lodge and cabins and stuff. But it seemed to me that, uh, you know, it was a, a unique opportunity and Tasmania has um, quite a few unique opportunities which uh, there aren't that many people who are out there looking for how you might uh, capitalise on them. But I hadn't any money for marketing with the exception of a PR company that I'd used when I was in the wine industry and so I gave them every dollar I could to bring journalists because it was a place they would write about. And it was That was a no-brainer. Anyone could have seen that, David. That's not, you know, hmm. rocket science, but... That's what I did and, of course, it went in today's terms viral and if social media had been about it, it would have gone all over. But it went as far as, uh, you know, full page, two, three, four pages in the tourism section of the LA Times and the Financial Times and all sorts of things in Europe and, and that was how it became, became known. And uh, within Tasmania, uh, it was quite difficult to uh, convince people that they didn't get free drinks anymore up there and that it was a different name. We changed it from Pencil Pine to Cradle Mountain Lodge. So that well, all of that was not without its uh, challenges as well. I remember... Some of your clients at Cradle Mountain Lodge were fascinated that with the introduction of plastic money, you flatly refused to take any credit cards whatsoever. And what you said was, why the hell would I give 1% or 2% of my whole turnover to some banker? So what happened was you used to say, if I recall this correctly, look, you go home and pay me when you get back and everything will be sweet. Did you ever get let down? Never got let down, David. Wow. Never got let down. Never got a bounce check. Fantastic. Um, the, the thing about this, and I've stuck with this for the last umpteen years since then, is that if you trust people, they will most likely trust you. And that was translated into the way we did our grog as well. Uh, you know, the wine cellar, go in, help yourself, write it down. And if you want a martini, then you make your own and write it down. We trusted them. And when you have a small operation... And um, you find that the connection with that, people actually uh, like it. Can I interrupt? Because that's really interesting. Because right now you're at the other end of the overland track. Yep. And you're doing exactly the same thing at this wonderful property of Pump House Point, trusting people, aren't you, with the same sort of, there's the grog, go and write it down. Is that what you, is that the same exactly. modus operandi? Exactly. Yeah, just at the other end of the overland track and about 30 years difference. Yep, very similar. Unique location, unique thing, because Cradle Mountain Lodge was the only thing up there. Yeah. Apart from a possum hunter's shack, hut, which we lived in for, for, for five, six years. That was the only building there when we went there. Have and you you've been happy with the large increase in numbers at Cradle and what you think is going to be going on at Cradle in the future? Well, David, it's an absolute truism that there is a, a big demand for leisure and holidays and it's growing 
and there is a need to handle numbers. And here in Tasmania, we have to have a couple of nodes where you can handle big numbers. Now, I'm at the other end of the spectrum in my own thought process, the way I want to deliver Tasmania, etc. But we must look after the mass mass at Tasmania's level, of course, nothing like mainland, but we must look after them. They are totally legitimate that they come in buses, that they come, uh, you know, in great numbers and they actually don't touch it very much, but they actually need to. They need to get their bit the way they um, understand it. And from that, they go away and say... You know, I'm a wilderness supporter, even though they stepped out of the bus. Took a photo and left. Yeah. Took a photo <laughs> and left. Yeah. So, so there's a place for large mass, numbers. Yeah. We need to manage it. And thank goodness that's being recognised. And over at Frosnay and at Cradle Mountain, they are two high visitation places. We've got to capitalise on that. We've got to look after them properly. We've got to provide the ice creams and... Um, you know, those sorts of things. And the, yeah, their facilities and amenities, whatever you call it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's interesting you mentioned about um, the Tasmanian scenario because at one stage you won a f- Churchill Fellowship uh, and you went round and round the world looking at how people manage their wilderness, I think, and w- whether it was just accommodation or general attractions. I can't remember why, Simon. Tell us about that. Well, the Churchill Fellowship I got given was to look at small operations in remote areas subject to short seasons and how could that be made to work here. And there were several big learnings from it for me. Um, I went to Canada, Alaska and Scandinavia and one of the big learnings for me was around the conflict that occurs in wilderness and how you share it with people. And I found that there was a great deal of um, anti-tourism there, as much as there is here, as much as there is anywhere, from those that actually treasure the place to be um, experienced in the way that they think you should. And and on the other side, there were people that wanted to put in um, or look after larger groups. Now, the absolute learning on this was that both sides sat down together and respected each other's point of view. Now, we don't get that here. No. It is absolute, you know, absolutely these people will sit down and talk to you for ages because that's part of their tactic. Part of their tactic is to delay it. So if you keep on talking long enough, you can keep on delaying it. But at some point, you come to an agreement. So they'll bend enough, you'll get to the point of signing an agreement and they'll walk out. Now, I could tell you year after year after year, that's what they do. The Bob Browns of this world, the Vicar Baileys of this world, they are absolutely dishonest in their dealings with anyone that wants to experience these places, in a, in a different way to which they believe. They think the way they do it is the only legitimate one 
and will not recognise anyone else's rights. Hmm. Remember, I'm a small group supporter and I've got a small operation and I believe it's totally legitimate for Tasmania, but we cannot drive everyone into having to spend $5,000 to get enough Gore-Tex to protect themselves and tents and, 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 and fitness, etc., to experience our wilderness. So they're selfish, very selfish people, elitist jerks, I call them. Right. On a different matter entirely, um, what on earth made you get involved with the industry body those years ago? What was the challenge? What was the issue? What was the drama? What was going on that you thought to yourself, hmm, look, a uh, bloke ought to have a bit of a dip at this. Um, a bloke ought to have a say. What was going on in your mind then? Well, I guess, yeah, you know, I wanted to put back. The the industry was really, you know, I can't say it was kind to me, but it certainly was successful. I wanted to give back. And then I got tricked by uh, the father of the CEO of Tourism Industry Council into... Um, putting my hand up when I was nominated to become chairman of Tourism Industry Council for a short period was what he said to me, just a short period. Short period turned into 16 years. Um, so I was sort of sucked in. and Just a short 16 years. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> once, you, once you get sucked in um, to that realm, I guess it was the ability to have some influence and and elevate our industry. No, it was it was a very rewarding situation. I I felt it's um, so over those over those intervening years of those sixteen years, you've seen tourism numbers grow from oh less than three hundred thousand to one point three million, going to rise to one point five very shortly. Simon, what do you want to see happen next? Well, David, there's. There's still room for growth, obviously, particularly around small niche operations. We have to be very careful about numbers now, but mostly about appropriate development. And uh, there are some proposals around at the moment that are totally inappropriate and absolutely need a big commitment from everyone to stop their progress because they will wreck our brand, they'll wreck the essence of what we are in Tasmania if we allow them to progress what they're promoting. You've never been backward in coming forward. You better tell me what they are. Well, one of them's Cambria. Right. Yeah, there's um, a proposal from an Asian group to change the zoning of the land 3,000 hectares of it, to enable a range of developments, including a big push on providing access for people to Asian cultural events and history and all this sort of stuff. So it's, it's clearly aimed at Asians and it is so huge, the possibilities of it and the size of it is so massive that they could actually dominate the council over there for a start 
Um, I don't think an Asian precinct on the East Coast is what our brand's about. Mm. And it will damage us. And they can only, on the scale of things, and there's, you know, this falsehood around, oh, yes, but we are actually only looking at this and this. Their proposal to change the use of that land enables them to put hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of units of accommodation over there in all sorts of different forms, regardless of the fact that they're doing studies into the ability of the land to sustain it. It is such a vast area mm. and this, this, uh, they're trying to snow everyone they can that um, we're only developing a tiny part of it. Yeah, have a look at how big that tiny part of it is and how many things you can put on there. So there's a complete snow job going on here. They've got a very good planner that I also use who's helping them through the process. But what they haven't got is a strong council who are standing there and not understanding what this can do to the East Coast experience. It's inappropriate, David, totally inappropriate and could wreck our brand. And the same thing goes for this Singaporean a wealthy person who has the ability, because we are actually a tiny city, we're not really a city by most standards with our population, but his proposals, and I think he's got six sites now, he could put the way he goes about it and he's applying for, you know, a 1,000 rooms here and 500 rooms there and 400 here. If you add all of his possible proposals up, all of which, all of which contravene the existing height rules, etc., etc. Again, this could dominate Hobart. And why do we want to change Hobart from what it is? Because that will destroy the main market we have. And we are seriously different and we should remain it. Thank you, Simon, about your comments about Cambria and that development that is specifically for the market of Asia. But have you got any other comments that we should be wary of as Tasmanians about the future of what we now term as mass tourism? David, the impact of massive cruise ships on the Hobart waterfront, precinct, city, 10,000 passengers in one hit, landing, which is what's mooted for the future. Right now we have ships coming in with 7,000 passengers hitting our shores, hitting Hobart in particular. This is going to do just as much damage as high-rises because they elbow the normal traveller who likes space and the quaintness of our city and the fact that we're not swamped. And... These people come in on these cruise ships. It is a perfectly legitimate holiday for people, but don't bring them here. There has to be a limit on that. And at the moment in this state, there is actually no limit. Not only that, but there's a commitment by government to give more money to the Ports Corporation to increase their capacity to get more of these monster cruise ships in at the same time. Now, someone has to put a peg in the sand and say, stop, Ports Corporation, because you are going to wreck the experience for our real market. The real market market being 
the other visitors that are that are enjoying the waterfront area when these fellows come in and just disgorge. Exactly. Yep. Okay. Exactly. Yep. And we know they spend very, very little. They don't even go into the restaurants. They go back to the ship and have lunch. They go back and have afternoon tea. Well, mm-hmm. they paid for it. Why wouldn't you? Yeah. So yep. this is a blot on the landscape and danger and Seriously, we as an industry have got to put a peg in the sand. We have. And there is nothing wrong with one, is there? Uh, for example, in a day it adds colour and light and movement down there, but not what you're saying scale. is not a scale. Okay. It's the scale. So we've got, to, we've got to try and find a number that we're comfortable with, 3,000, 4, whatever it is. We've, that's what we're saying. Is that, is that what you're saying, Simon? I'm saying there must be a limit and it should be under 1,000 passengers. Oh, under 1,000. Under 1,000 passengers, okay. David. Right. Um, more than a thousand passengers hitting here in one hit is also impactive. Now there are plenty of operators around the world with niche cruising uh, under a thousand passengers. We have no cap on it, none. No. And the government's ports corporation here want to put sixty odd million to increasing the facility to allow more to come. Well, while you're on a roll, Simon, do you want to make any comments about wide-bodied jets flying in from various locations rushing into the new lengthy airport in Hobart? Look, David, it's just the same. Yep. But you think about this Singaporean that wants to wreck our city with high-rises and 25-square-metre dog box rooms, he's going to be catering to these mass charters. Now, there is no limit on bringing... So it's an interlinked problem. It is. Right, okay. Yep. Now, I'm really hopeful that the people that are trying to promulgate getting international charters straight from humongous cities in Asia into Hobart will wake up to the fact that Cairns is actually five hours closer and Cairns, unless they subsidise, heavily subsidise, the airlines can't sustain them. Now, they've just lost another one because they stopped the subsidy. And I'm advised that this government is actually exploring ways to subsidise these people to come in. Now, this needs to stop, just the same as we need to put a stop to this massive cruise ship um, thing. We're like lemmings. I know that some people wouldn't know what a lemming is, but lemmings go and commit suicide (laughs) in in their hundreds of millions. Yes. Altogether, and I was going to mention that Tasmanians international appeal is growing in numbers, where our domestic market is uh, is flattening out a little bit. And I was going to mention about are there any pitfalls ahead, but I think you've nailed all of them, Simon, already. So, can I just move then on to quickly about if we've if we see this growth in numbers that's going to occur, this is a people industry, so. Giving our visitors meaningful and lasting experiences, where do you reckon we're going to get these people from in the future? And how do we entice them into your business, this tourism and hospitality game? Well, firstly, I say that by any standards, they are not low-paid people. Um, and it's a myth that's promulgated and perpetuated everywhere um, I think we've got to start in the education system um, really to help our kids understand that 
tourism is a legitimate business and it what it is doing for Tasmania and what it provides. And the 2.1 or 2 billion that these people are bringing into the state now is providing your sewerage system, it's providing your roads, Government it's providing coffers. a whole range of things through um, taxes, etc. We need to instil that right from day dot. And if I had my way, if I was dictator, and if you want to vote for me, I'll accept your vote. Do you want any ticket tomorrow, Simon? It's a big day. No, tomorrow. look, I, I missed election. out in nominating for tomorrow's oh, election. But if I was, I would immediately introduce at whatever grade is appropriate into schools a tourism curriculum straight away and fund it. Now that I see as one of the answers to us being able to support our industry with the right numbers of people working in it. We should develop the culture, we should have as our goal the culture of Europe, of France for instance, where it's an honour to actually work and serve and look after people, be it food, accommodation, experiences, bicycling or, you know, whatever it is. Um, that should be a goal of our governments, should be one of their platforms. Right. Well, um, you don't have any argument from me, of course. The next question I have is about people who want to invest and their time and their money and their whatever else. What would you say to someone who wants to start up and join our industry and invest all of their assets as you did, sold a plane, sold your handbag, whatever else you had, sold bits and pieces and bought pencil pine. So there's a whole bucket of people out there today that are about to do the same thing, I feel sure. Um, and we, I'm, I'm sure we've seen, both of us have seen a whole heap of people go through this. In the future, what would you say to someone who's looking to start up here and join our industry under those circumstances where they invest all their significant assets? What's the future for them? Well, the future's good. It's incredibly frustrating. It's incredibly costly to enter it unless you go and buy the motel down the road or something that exists already. If you want to start up, no matter what it is, where it is here, you are bound into a system and a process that will cost you a sheer... Lots, lots of money. Thank mm, you. Lots yeah. of money, yeah. Right. So... Um, cost a shirt? A shirt could, load. It could. Yeah. Now, actually, you could lose your shirt oh, very right. easily. Okay. So one of the things that people omit from their plans, in their business plans, regularly, is sufficient investment in the marketplace. So let me give you a quick example. We get an idea around a tourism experience, whatever it might be, an accommodation or a bicycle tour or whatever, a bus trip. And they just sort of kind of look around and say, well, there are a lot of those around and so therefore there must be a market for it. They don't actually go and spend the money on finding out and quantifying what that market is, what they should be offering, how much it is worth to people, there's a whole range of things they need to go into and it is absolutely essential. Tourism industry investments have a terrible reputation, which is why the banks are so loath to lend to tourism ventures. It has a bad history because they have this lovely idea for a lovely notion for a, 
you know, in a, 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 a building on a beach somewhere. And, um, but they don't actually ask the market, do you want a building on the beach here? And how much will you pay? And et cetera, et cetera. Now, we have a very high cost of delivery of anything in Australia. So, in a way, you know, it's very hard to compete in the areas that provide very low-cost labour into their um, tourism offerings. So you need to be very cognisant that uh, the market is going to be attracted to your proposition and that you are competitive. Now, that needs to be done up front before you invest anything. Mm. And I I just... uh, Good advice. um, urge everyone to to do that. So where would you get that advice? There are people around who can do it um, and you should do a demand study Hmm. first up. And if a demand study says don't do this and you throw away whatever, lots of money, 20, 30, 40, 50 grand, you've at least not wasted 5 million. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, it's a mere bagatelle in those firms. Of course it? it is. Yeah. And I've got to say that when you do this properly, you can convince investors, be they a bank or private investors, that their money will be pretty safe because here is the demand. Now, it's a very sophisticated thing. It's, it's not easy to do and you can't do it unless you know how. Simon, you've developed Strawn, you've developed Pump House Point, You've developed Peppermint Bay, they're beginning beginning with P. You've developed Franklin Manor. Uh, these are the ones that are rolling off my tongue because I didn't... River Cruises. Gordon River Cruises. How about Cruises? How about Cruises? I've just got a few to mention. It's okay. So out of all of those, what was the most fun? Not the most successful. What was the most fun? What did you enjoy doing the most out of all of those? It's, I've been asked this before, David, and it's very hard because you get bouts of enormous fun and bouts of enormous terror, <laughs> depression, <laughs> ruinous numbers. Demonic and, thoughts. Oh, dear, yes. And so I, I can't really say, I mean, I, I've got to say the years that you and I spent working together were a lot of fun because you injected such great humour into the whole thing. We did have fun. Like uh, naked um, jet boating, jet boating, and water skiing behind cruise mm. boats and things. Yeah. Um, in that case, take away the fun bit. But um, I think most people will acknowledge that there are four or five key elements to making a development a success. You've got to have some. Um, Excellent advice. You've got to have a good location. You've got to be able to do that demand study, as you say. Invest in social capital, which is, you know, you've got to have a team. Then you've got to have the finance behind you. You've got to be able to put together a deal. You've got to do all those things. There's a number of things that go round in a head like yours, okay? So I want you to try and put your finger on the one thing that's made you successful. Commitment and not giving up. Well, that's absolutely true because, sadly, I've been at the back end of that on a number of occasions. (laughs) Not giving up and commitment. I think everybody would have to agree about you never giving up, Simon. Absolutely. And on that point, you're still energetic, enthusiastic, vibrant. You don't give up. 
What are you going to do next? Listen, David, I can't tell you everything. <laughs> You've got to know that. There are so many opportunities out there um, that uh, I just can't. I'm, my family have died late in their 90s and I'm hoping I can keep going that long because there are, there are so many opportunities in this state um, that are not being done, that are there to be done. And uh, as I said, I can't tell you everything. Okay. So, um, Simon Current, you've been our first tourism champion on these Talking Tourism podcast series for the TICT, and, and I want to thank you so much for giving up your time today. Is there anything you want to finish with? Yes, David. Um, this is a fantastic industry. It's incredibly rewarding, and I'm I'm really so um, uh, privileged to be able to be a part of it. That's how I feel about it, and to have had the opportunity to develop the things I have. Um, and Tasmania has provided those opportunities. Uh, so I'm happy. I'm happy, and I'm happy for the future for our industry as well. Thank you, Simon, and I think Tasmania uh, should thank you too. Uh, that list of developments that we've mentioned today um, of the cruises and the companies, I can't imagine the kind of uh, capital that uh, has, has slipped through your fingers and disappeared into the uh, vari- various operations around the state to the consultants uh, group, including myself, um, to the building companies, to all the people that have been involved in the development of your corporations and your businesses, but also to the thousands of people over the years that you've actually employed. I mean, I would shudder to put all those group certificates together in one lump and see what they look like right now. It would be frightening. But, Simon, you've been an absolute champion and uh, in our industry and absolutely today. So thank you to our wonderful guest, Simon, for coming on the show. To download uh, any links to anything that was mentioned um, in this or any other uh, podcast, you can go to www.tict.com.au and check out all our other podcasts there too. Remember that a new podcast is uploaded every fortnight on a different topic, so just keep coming back. If you enjoyed today's show, tell your tourism colleagues to take a listen as well. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. You've been listening to Talking Tourism, brought to you by Tourism Industry Council Tasmania. For show notes, other materials and episodes, head to tict.com.au. Be sure to come back every fortnight for a new instalment of Talking Tourism.